Stacy Kathleen McCall. It was a day of celebration, a high school graduation. Classmates gathered that evening for parties with plans to continue into the weekend, but somewhere between those parties and the following morning, three women disappeared on June 7, 1992. She headed off and we said our goodbyes and kissed goodbye and had no idea that that would be the last time we would see our daughter. The incident occurred in Springfield, Missouri, and is no closer to being solved today than it was when they vanished over three decades ago. I'm Rob Gavigan, and this is the haunting, unsolved case of the Springfield Three. If you're into the dark and the mysterious, be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. But for now... Cheryl Levitt was a 47-year-old single mother employed as a cosmetologist. Her daughter, Susie, was 19 and about to start at Missouri State University. Stacy McCall, 18, was Susie's close friend and had graduated from Kickapoo High School a few days prior to the incident. On the night of June 6, 1992, Susie and Stacy attended a few graduation parties where they stayed until the early morning hours. Around 2.15 a.m., they left the party and headed to Cheryl's home at 1717 East Delmar Street to get some rest. They planned to join friends at a water park in Branson the following morning, but by then, the women were nowhere to be found. The more people that we can make aware of the situation we're faced with, the better chance we have of somebody coming forward with solid knowledge of the circumstances. On the morning of June 7, 1992, after several attempts to reach them by phone, Susie's close friend Janelle and her boyfriend Mike stopped by the house on East Delmar Street around 8 a.m. to check on them. Their cars were still in the driveway, but the three women were nowhere in sight. There were no signs of a struggle, except for a broken porch light which Mike swept up because Janelle was barefoot. The front door was unlocked, so they let themselves in. All of their personal belongings, including their purses, cash, and medications, were left behind. Their purses were oddly all together, lined in a row. Cheryl was a chain smoker and wouldn't go far without her cigarettes, but those were left behind in her purse, alongside her lighter and roughly $900 in cash. A message was left on the answering machine that investigators believe might have provided a clue about the disappearances, but it was inadvertently erased. Janelle and Mike assumed they would return shortly, so they left. 1992 was far before mobile phones were a widespread thing, and that goes especially for the internet. So it was common practice to just show up at a friend's house, especially if they didn't answer their landline. Around 11 a.m., Janelle and Mike returned to Cheryl's house with Stacy's mother, Janice McCall, in search of the high school students after they failed to show up at the water park. Cheryl's dog, Cinnamon, a Yorkshire Terrier, was 
quote, just going crazy, just yipping and crying, Janice said. Suddenly, the phone rang and Janelle answered. She said it was a, quote, lewd sexual call, so she hung up. The phone rang again and a message was left on the answering machine that she assumed was a postgraduate prank call, so it was deleted. In 1992, 911 was a relatively new feature in Greene County, Missouri, and was, of course, only intended for emergencies, so they didn't initially report anything since they believed the trio would return home soon. Instead, they decided to tidy the house in preparation, including washing the dishes and disposing of the broken glass, thereby making a critical mistake. These actions would later prove to compromise the crime scene, and police had almost nothing to go off of during a long, vigorous investigation. That evening, the trio were finally reported missing. Back then, you couldn't even track local telephone calls. Uh, You had to have a trap on the phone, so somebody can make a call locally. There was no way to trace that call. I'm not blaming anybody. You know, a family is concerned they're going to do everything they can do. Anytime you go into a crime scene, you take something in. When you leave the crime scene, you take something out. Ron Warsham was the deputy police chief in 1992. The following morning on June 8, 1992, the case was assigned to former Detective Sergeant David Asher of the Springfield PD. What started out as 500 possible leads ended up with over 5,000 leads across 21 states within days after the news network picked up the story and dubbed them the Springfield Three. Investigators used helicopters, police dogs, cadaver dogs, everything they could think of. Nothing. They used helicopters with infrared cameras and even searched Lake Springfield looking for bodies. Still nothing. To this day, there are no suspects, but a handful of individuals do remain under suspicion. Over the years, many theories have emerged regarding the Springfield 3 incident. However, the mystery remains unsolved, and no one is certain of what happened to the three women. We miss our two young ladies, and we know that Stuart and Janice McCall are also hurting terribly. And we were on a roller coaster that would go up and down and up and down, and that roller coaster would say, we think we have them. I firmly believe that one of them was being stalked for some time before the crime ever was committed. I personally feel like we have talked to that person or persons responsible. Retired Springfield Police Sergeant David Asher helped lead the investigation into the disappearance of Cheryl Levitt, her daughter Susie Streeter, and Susie's friend Stacy McCall. Just days into their disappearance, Asher's team was tasked with finding answers. Many detectives are still searching for today. My team and I worked days and nights and uh, Many, many hours, uh, we were overwhelmed. We were confronted with issues that we had never been confronted with before. I will tell you that every person on the department, when I was there, I retired in 95, will be thrilled. And everyone involved in this case since then will be ecstatic that it would be resolved. I wish 
we had solved that case back then. But I pray daily that this case is solved before I leave this world. I won't have to get up to glory to see the girls to find out what happened. So fresh. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Allow the passion to overwhelm you. Bliss. Croissants. Warm and flaky. A lover beside you in bed. A climax. All of the best things have a feeling. Why chase the feeling? Let the feeling come to you. Federally legal and shipped right to your door. The link in the description. The most delicious and blissful products. Don't deny yourself. Buy some today. New customers, use code ROB for 20% off your entire order. Mmm, such generosity. Already fallen in love with our sponsor? Returning for more of that good, good feeling? Returning customers, use code ROBX for 10% off of your entire order. No matter what, they take care of you. Mmm, loyalty. Passion, trust, treat yourself, our sponsor. The link below. Grave robbing ex-boyfriend. Susie Streeter had recently broken up with Dustin Reckla, who had been arrested for grave robbing with two friends, Michael Clay and Joseph Rydell. Susie gave a statement to officers investigating the vandalism on March 5, 1992. Her vehicle was allegedly used during the crime, and she was scheduled to testify against her former boyfriend in a trial set to take place in a matter of months. The boys were accused of breaking into a mausoleum at Springfield's Maple Park Cemetery on February 21, 1992, and stealing a skull and some bones. Police said Dustin Reckla sold 26 grams of gold teeth fillings from the skull at a Springfield pawn shop for $30. All three were charged with felony institutional vandalism. After the Springfield Three went missing, Dustin's partner in crime, Michael Clay, told officers that he hoped, quote, those bitches were dead. Other than Susie ratting them out to police, there's really no other motive for them to commit these murders. Perhaps Dustin did do it and had help from his grave-robbing friends, but they weren't exactly smart criminals, and they haven't cracked after 30 years of silence. No fingerprints either were found, and they both passed polygraph tests, so police were forced to let them go. Even though we know that polygraph tests really don't mean much of anything, and even the creator of the polygraph test himself said that if he knew it would be relied upon so heavily to determine whether someone was telling the truth or not, he would have never invented it in the first place. Gerald Carnahan 
In the spring of 1993, less than a year after the Springfield Three vanished, Gerald Carnahan was charged in Clayton, Missouri with attempting to abduct 18-year-old Heather Starkey from a sidewalk. He served two years in prison for that crime. It wasn't until 1995 that DNA testing became available in Missouri. Forensics weren't widely understood in the early 90s. In 2007, Carnahan was convicted of first-degree murder and forcible rape for the death of Jackie Johns in June of 1985, 25 years, three months, and six days later, in Greene County. He was charged after criminalists said DNA evidence in semen found on John's body matched Carnahan's DNA. He's currently serving a life sentence. Over the years, police named Carnahan a suspect in other homicides, including the 1987 death of Debbie Sue Lewis. Like Johns, she vanished from her car on US-160. Like Johns, her purse and keys were left inside and the driver's door was open. Lewis's skeleton was discovered months later in Newton County. Carnahan was never arrested or charged in that case. As for the Springfield Three, however, Carnahan remarked that he, quote, really has no idea what happened or where they ran off to. Stephen Garrison Stephen Garrison, a member of a motorcycle gang at the time, told police in the summer of 1993 that he knew what happened to Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy. He offered more information if investigators helped him get out of jail, where he was being held on an unrelated weapons charge. According to Garrison, police were tracking him and several associates almost exclusively for a year regarding the Springfield Three, but eventually backed off. Garrison claimed to overhear someone confess to killing the three women at a drug party. He said their bodies were taken to a hog farm in Webster County. Police said that Garrison provided information that wasn't public knowledge. A judge then lowered Garrison's bail and police put him up in a hotel where he promptly fled. Just a few days later, he broke into a college student's apartment in Springfield raping, sodomizing, and terrorizing her. She survived and testified against him. Garrison is serving 40 years in prison for rape, sodomy, burglary, and robbery. To this day, he remains a person of interest in the Springfield Three case. Bart Streeter Bart Streeter, Susie's older brother, was disinherited by his mother, Cheryl, because of his violent temper and drinking problem. Bart had started drinking around age 17 when he moved out. In 1992, four months before she disappeared, Susie had moved in with her brother, Bart. That was until he hit her after she tried to turn down his loud music. Susie immediately moved back in with her mother and stopped talking to Bart entirely. Bart was drunk with his neighbor the night his sister went missing. He left the neighbors around 11.30 p.m. to 12 a.m. and allegedly went home but had no alibi. Bart did pass a polygraph test and never really had motive to kill his mother and sister. After all, he was a drunk and likely would have left behind quite a mess. Perhaps we'll never know the truth, though. The number one suspect. Robert Craig 
Cox, however, fits the profile as the number one suspect in my mind. He's a former army ranger and current death row inmate. He had been previously charged with randomly abducting two women in California that he did not know. In 1988, a Florida jury convicted Cox of the slaying of a Walt Disney World clerk a decade earlier. Due to a lack of credible evidence tying Cox to the murder, his conviction was reversed and he was released in 1990. In 1991, Cox moved back to his childhood hometown of, you guessed it, Springfield, Missouri. He was living there in 1992 when the Springfield 3 disappeared. In fact, Cox worked for a telephone company at the time and they had recently surveyed their underground wiring in front of Susie and Cheryl's house. Cox claimed that he was at a golf tournament on June 6, 1992 and stayed at his parents that night. The next morning, he claimed that he took his girlfriend to church at Central Assembly of God. His girlfriend was an ironclad alibi the night of the murder. However, after her and Cox broke up, she recanted her statement, saying that she had no idea where he was the night that the women disappeared. They never went to church the next day either. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough evidence to place Cox at the scene. In 1995, Cox was placed back on Springfield PD's radar after being arrested in Texas for holding a gun to a child during a robbery. Cox was convicted of kidnapping and robbery and is currently serving a life sentence. In 1996, Cox broke his silence when a local TV reporter in Decatur, Texas, interviewed him in prison. I know that they're dead. I'll say that. I know that. That's not a theory. Yeah, but I know that they're just, I just know that they're dead. I believe that the three missing women are buried close to Springfield. He was brought in for questioning again where he didn't admit to being involved but didn't deny it either. The interview was subpoenaed by authorities and presented before a grand jury, but never handed down any charges. Cox said he knew more, but wouldn't say anything until his mother died. He didn't want to embarrass her, apparently, especially since she defended him and said he did stay at her place the night of the murder. She's currently still alive and 83 years old. Some would suggest that Cox is just looking for attention, since his criminal record of robberies and kidnappings were all extremely messy, leaving behind a lot of details and evidence the police used to catch him. But his statements in 1996 should not be overlooked. Dennis Graves said to focus on Cox, who he believes is the only living person who can tell the final chapter. Cleve County Sheriff David Millsap started with the Springfield Police Department a year and a half after that fateful day in 1992. I really truly believe it's the case that haunts the Springfield Police Department. He led a comprehensive review of the case, including over 25,000 documents. The conclusion is one that still runs cold. The disappearance of Cheryl Levitt, Susie, and Stacy McCall in Springfield, Missouri, is a mystery that puzzled investigators and the public alike for decades and still continues to. I'm hopeful and very optimistic that this case will be solved at some point. Somebody out there hopefully will eventually say, you know, 
It's time. I got, I got to let this go. It's time for us to have some results. If you know anything or think you know anything, call the Springfield Police Department. If in the past you've done that and nobody's contacted you, do it again and again because one of you, someone, knows something. And we can't. No police department can succeed without your involvement. I don't have to know who it is. I just want the answers of where the three missing women are. That's all. I remember one day, I was barbecuing in the backyard, and I was using a charcoal grill. And I said, Stacy, I'm out of lighter fluid. Will you go get me some? She said, sure, Dad. I'll go get you some. And uh, she went off to the store. And anyway, guess what she brought back? <laughs> I've had this for 25 years. Probably what I'm the most thankful for is we do have those memories, and we can share those memories. This is just to let them know how much we love them. That no matter where they are, they're going to know of our wishes for them and of our love. I think this is my last candlelight vigil this time. I don't plan on doing another one. The thing that's just boggling even now is that we don't have any answers at all. I mean, they had 24, 25,000 pieces of documents in the case file. They had so many leads, thousands of leads, thousands of tips, all those people working on them. They've had FBI experts and some very smart people all over the country examine that case. And we had all the, the tips about the van, the tips about every disturbed pile of dirt in southwest Missouri became suspicious to somebody. It's, and it's gone nowhere. They vanished. How do three people vanish? And that's what continues to keep people's attention on this. I can remember bylines by Tracy Bauer and um, Chris Clark and Chris Bentley and Debbie Barnes and all the people who were working in the newspaper back in the 90s eventually got involved in it and, and uh, it touched almost everyone. The Springfield Three murders are a reminder that even in a small town, terrible things can and will happen. Despite numerous investigations and various theories, no one truly knows what happened. The case has also shown that even after 30 years, there is still hope that the women will be found. The case remains open and authorities continue to pursue any leads that may shed light on whatever happened to the Springfield Three. Anyone with information about the disappearance of the Springfield Three is requested to contact the Springfield Police Department at 417-864-1810 or contact Crime Stoppers at 417-869-8477 or visit p3tips.com. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there.
Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.